Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Killer, and this is case number eight, the case of Zachary Turner. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. We had been out. We came back here. There was a little card in the door from Constable Walsh saying... That would we contact him? I was here. Mark and I were here. I was at my house. I was home. I was at my parents' house. Around 6 p.m., I was passing through the living room on the way to meet friends for dinner. They told me to sit down. One year earlier, I'd begun shooting a memory album for Zachary about his father. I'd just spent the entire summer of 2003 traveling the globe, gathering interviews for it. I'd just met Zachary a few weeks earlier. I had shown footage of him to my then four-year-old nephew when I got home. He said he couldn't wait to meet the baby. He and his brother made Zachary a Build-A-Bear. Who's his bear for, Lucas? Zachary. Now, my audience was dead. So I put my project away. I finished a short film I'd been working on. I wrote more scripts. I shot one more interview when I was home for Christmas that year, but I wasn't really sure why. Andrew had always loved Christmas, and he had a passion for putting up holiday decorations. Kate and David had not decorated for Christmas since Andrew's murder in 2001. So this evolved into us actually spending a great deal of time with Shirley Turner. So it's not like I need you guys, like you know, it's gonna be a big deal to me if I don't have you to babysit. In order to be around Zachary. I don't wanna just like totally cut Kate out of the babysitting game, right? And she's a good babysitter, I think. She she is. What kind of things did you do? Go to the mall. Go to the movies. Swimming lessons yeah. we took him to. Something is like, we do the Easter egg hunt and we go to church. She came here, bold as brass, coming to be in our face kind of thing. It's just lucky we're all the same religion. I mean, that's just the way it turned out, really. I had enormous fears for them. I had fear that Shirley would go for them. Basically, I just want your word that I'm going to know where he's at, like any babysitter, you know. And they didn't seem to be worried for themselves. In fact, they said they weren't. You know, if you're going to take them and they were to say, surely we're going to run out and do this, is it okay? So that if... At this point, that they didn't care. Because I know you would be worried if we disappeared for a couple of days or whatever, right? Can you describe what the process was like for you? I know he's there, right? Oh, yeah, he, he definitely, definitely is in the room. <laughs> Disgusting. Oh, Disgusting. There, there, there has been, I guess, a lot of uncomfortable feeling on both our parts. I would really like for you and Kate to reconsider getting some help with that. But going up to the door, I mean... I was really upset when you took him today because I feel like I did the day you saw him at Unified Family Court. Having to be with her. I don't know if he's okay with you. I know you're not going to hurt him, but I don't know what you're saying to him. It's just... Nauseating. Look, we will 
is best for Zachary. We will not hurt Zachary, period. You understand? I know you don't want to, you don't tend to, but if we don't get help, we don't know we're doing what's best. We religiously did not talk about the case. Now, you don't like this answer, but I'm going to give it to you again. The reason we go through the lawyers is so that we don't have these meltdowns and emotional scenes. Understood? No, I can't consent to more time right now, feeling this way. She'd try to suck us into She brought it up one time. But she'd talk about, um, you know, was Andrew's hair light when he was a baby? And we just shut up. I feel like a 12-year-old asking you guys for stuff well, all the time. We have it. We're quite willing to buy anything he needs. If he needs a coat right now, let's go buy a coat right now and get on with it. I thought it was like being at war. I want to work and I want to pay for everything for him. Nobody wants to do it, but you got to do it. And he needs milk in another day or so. I don't have the money. He needs pampers in another day or so. So, facing this bitch. I can tell you this much, Shirley. You will not let that child run out of food and diapers. That's the price we had to pay to make sure that we had a good connection with Zachary. I know. Well, we will bring him to the door. He knew us, we knew him. Listen. I wouldn't let him anyway. Listen. So that when she finally went to prison. Listen, listen, no, Shirley. Shirley, listen. He'd have a smooth transition into our life. We are going to go buy food and diapers and bring them to the door this morning. Zachary has to be fed and diapered. So we will bring the stuff. Understood? It's almost difficult to explain in words the feelings that anyone watching this case would, would experience. It was recently aired on CBC's W5. I had many calls from across Canada supporting this initiative. We can learn from the way we fail, Zachary. If we can protect the innocents and the children of, of our country, then this legislation is deemed worthy. When determining if an accused person should be released from custody, courts will be expressly reminded to consider the safety and protection of all children affected by the accused person's release. I want to pay respect to Zachary's grandparents, Kate and David Bagby. Last week, David and Kathleen Bagby appeared to assist the committee in its consideration of Bill C-464, unanimously supported by the Standing Committee for Justice and Human Rights. I very much support this bill. I would like to indicate the government's support for this bill, Zachary's bill. I urge this House to give this bill its full support. There are times when we can work across party lines when an issue is that important. Is it the pleasure of the House to adopt the motion. Yes. Carrying unanimous. It is now off to the Senate, and I urge uh, the Senate speedy passage of this bill. I'm, I'm going to just impose on your courtesy to say hello to Kate and David. Hello, maybe. Hello. I wish you were here. And we would have come if we'd have known. Um, well, even though I had my cataract surgery yesterday, I was going to cancel that if we could get a flight. We would like to, people to know that this does mean such a lot to us. I highly commend cataract surgery. I've just had it. I didn't see the documentary, but I saw a Dateline, I think, at NBC uh, with Keith Morrison which was very moving. If this provision had been in place in January of 2003, the Crown Prosecutor might have been prodded to ask for the prison records on Shirley. They clearly showed that she was unstable, and that information might have resulted in denial of bail and hence the survival of Zachary. Now, because I will probably never again have the chance to make this argument directly to a group of lawgivers, I will summarize the case for blanket denial of bail to anyone accused of murder. We tried to bring down the hammer real big on this, but we knew that wouldn't we wouldn't get it through. It may be for others at other times to go further than this. We chose in the present instance, as Mr. Andrews has said, to take 
the first small step. Please let it pass. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And finally, on December 15th, 2010, it doesn't bring either of them back, but it's the best we can get. We hope it will save lives. We'll never know for sure. Sometimes making sense of the unsensible can seem like an arduous task. It can be difficult to weave together the pieces that lay scattered on the ground and even the ones that are wholly together. The question often asked is, how random are the events of your life? There are times when you look back at the way that certain events have unfolded and you do that rearview analysis and you may wonder to yourself, why was I put in this position? Or you may have gratitude for randomly crossing paths with somebody. For instance, Craig and I became very good friends, in essence due to chance. We live far away from each other, but cross paths as co-workers. However, even being co-workers on the same team wasn't enough. It was actually a chance encounter where we crossed paths at the same Foo Fighters concert, where we both stopped and chatted for a few minutes. That day changed us and turned into a great friendship. We both eventually left the company in pursuit of other things, but we maintained almost daily contact, which eventually led to this podcast. Sometimes I look back and think, how random. Sometimes I look back and think it was on purpose, meant to be. You see, Craig and I are more than a decade difference in age, in which I'll take the time to point out that he's the senior citizen here. All this to say, this case, and the way it unfolds this week, appears to me to have a lot of randomness, a lot of chance occurrences, the crossing of paths of two individuals, which leads to the destruction of families and friends, the loss of someone close to them, someone larger than life. The wake of this tragedy in this case is huge. Sometimes that randomness in life can lead lead us to question many things about our own existence. Get ready as we go on a wild journey where we see so many warning signs missed, opportunities given up, and unfortunately lives lost. This is the case of Zachary Turner. It was November 6, 2001. The body of Andrew David Bagby was discovered laying face down in a parking lot at Keystone State Park in Derry Township, Pennsylvania. Bagby had been shot a total of five times, including the face, with twenty-two caliber bullets. Lying in a pool of his own blood, Andrew David Bagby had been murdered. After the initial police investigation began, they quickly realized they had a suspect, Shirley Turner. Shirley Turner was the ex-girlfriend of Andrew Bagby. The Pennsylvania State Police investigated people close to Bagby, which is what led them to contact Turner. When initially contacted by police, Turner stated that she was in bed sick on November 5th, the day of the murder. Police spent several weeks collecting evidence. After some review, they were able to connect cell phone and internet records together that pointed to Shirley taking the long drive from her residence in Council Bluffs, Iowa, on November 4, 2001. Her cell phone made calls in Chicago, South Bend, and Pittsburgh. Turner's internet history also appeared to show that she logged into Hotmail and eBay from Bagby's home computer, and she also used his phone to call into her work and report herself sick. They also discovered printed-out MapQuest directions in Andrew's apartment. When police confronted Turner with the new evidence, she began to change her story. In October, Shirley had purchased a handgun, a Phoenix Arms HP-22, and 22 caliber ammunition. She began taking firearms lessons soon after the purchase. She eventually tells police that she did meet Bagby at Keystone State Park, but that he put the gun in his trunk. She also reported that her gun was stolen to her shooting instructor. Prior to the events leading up to the discovery of Bagby's body, on November 3rd, just two days before Andrew's murder, He and Shirley ate lunch at the airport, where Andrew breaks up with her. Turner then returns home to Iowa immediately afterward. The pair began dating in early 99, but she began to get possessive. All right, can I ask you a question? Did you watch the full documentary about this case? This is what actually caused us to to take this case this week, because I happened to stumble upon this documentary. It's called Dear Zachary, which um, 
I just want to pause for a minute and give credit to um, the director of that and, and the team that put that together because we used a little bit of their audio at the beginning to, to do the trailer for this show. Did you actually watch the entire documentary? I did not watch the entire documentary all the way through. I was watching some of the okay. shorts and trailers and things like that, but I have not watched the whole thing. Okay, good. I kind of didn't want you to because I want to get your initial reaction as we go through the story. I kind of like when you are somewhat unaware of what happens because that way it makes it I don't know, a little more interesting to, to discuss is that you get your live feedback, right? So <clears throat> what's your immediate thoughts on, on Shirley when you, when you hear this? Um, I mean, the possessive thing for sure stands out. And just from the, the trailer audio that we listened to, and she's not all there. I mean, I watched lots of interviews. I did watch lots of interviews with Zachary's grandparents and it sounded like when Shirley was going to be going off to prison for his murder that they were going to be you know custodians of Zachary at that point so and they, and they seem like a very a very nice couple very caring grandparents but then you hear that conversation on the phone where she's like I just don't know if you're hurting Zachary you know what are you telling him that this surely is a she's a doctor she's a PhD she's done lots of research and lots of study you know I don't know what field she studies under she's an MD actually She's not a PhD. She's an MD. She's a medical doctor in this okay. case. So yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, she's a, she's a legit doctor. Like you have to go through years of school and training to even get there. Like, so she has to be mentally there in some regard. Right. But she's highly educated. And honestly, what, I mean, what could the grandparents tell Zachary being, you know, at this time, I think he was a year old when he was murdered, right? Just one. Yeah, he was, a, he was 13 months. Okay. So just over one years old. Do you remember anything from when you were one year old? Because I don't. And what could those grandparents have told Zachary that would have, you know, defamated Shirley in his eyes at that point? He would have learned it later in life when he realized his mom was in prison and what happened. But at that point in time, she's she's driving herself crazy thinking that they're telling Zachary all these crazy things about her. And he really ha- he has no compass at this time. Yeah, yeah. So let's pause the discussion on Zachary a little bit and go through sort of a timeline of events as we kind of unfold some of these things that happen. Um, Okay, so let's talk about who is Shirley Turner. So before we dig in deeper, let's talk about the background of Shirley Turner. Shirley was born on January 28, 1961. She was a Canadian-American citizen. Her father was a U.S. serviceman and her mother was a civilian from St. Anthony, Newfoundland. She grew up with three siblings in Wichita, Kansas, but was eventually um, relocated to Newfoundland with her mother once her parents split up. Shirley pursued a career as a doctor and began her journey through medical school. In 1981, during a winter break from Memorial University, Shirley married her longtime boyfriend. She was pregnant at the time. Turner continued her studies, and the father raised the child as a stay-at-home dad. Two years later, she gave birth to the couple's second child. She left her husband for a former boyfriend, then eventually divorced. A year later, Shirley married her second husband. Turner had another child in 1990. One year before, she would eventually divorce her second husband. In October of 93, a man living with Shirley told his therapist that she was abusive towards her children, both psychologically and physically. Her children claimed she would hit them with a belt and spank them, among other things. The case was closed without Shirley ever being interviewed. Three years later, Turner and her second husband would divorce. The court granted her custody of their daughter. However, within a few days of this ruling, she sent her daughter to to live with her father while her two other kids were sent to live with their paternal grandmother. 
Turner graduated with an undergrad degree from Memorial University in 1994. By 1998, she had earned her MD degree. She went on to work as an intern and then a resident at a teaching hospital in Newfoundland. She was described by her supervising physician as hostile. He said that she would yell at him, cry, and accuse him of of treating her unfairly. He went on to say that the staff was so scared to give her criticism that they rarely did so alone. This didn't stop Turner from achieving the ability to practice medicine. By the summer of 2000, she received her medical license and could now practice medicine. I also want to mention, prior to this, she was a school teacher, I believe a science teacher, for roughly 11 years. Okay, that's definitely an interesting fact, especially with her behavior. In March of 96, Turner began a relationship with a fellow resident at the hospital she was working for. They eventually broke up, but upon their breakup, Turner began harassing him, calling him an obscene amount of times. In November of 97, they got into an altercation in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She hit him with a high-heeled shoe in the jaw. The ex-boyfriend moved away to West Westtown Township, Pennsylvania in 1998. Turner followed him and left him threatening voicemails. She would show up out of the blue, completely unannounced at his apartment. The police were called several times as a boyfriend was afraid what she might do next. On April 7, 1999, Turner was found in a drugged-like state in and out of consciousness. Her ex-boyfriend was the one who found her lying outside of his apartment. Turner was found in a black dress holding a bouquet of roses. She had two suicide notes. One for her ex-boyfriend and one for her psychiatrist. The letter read, I'm not evil, I'm just sick. She had taken 65 milligrams of over-the-counter drugs and had to have her stomach pumped at a nearby hospital. The next day, the ex-boyfriend checked his voicemail and found a message from a female caller believed to be Shirley disguising her voice saying, Dr. Turner died last night. This woman's batshit crazy. (laughs) Just straight up. Like, you just read that, that's enough. Like, she's just absolutely nuts. Yeah. When she's calling your voicemail... (laughs) And telling you that she's dead the night before, yeah, you might want to <laughs> might want to rethink your uh, relationship just a bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. My thoughts exactly. She sounds just like that woman that, like, I don't know. I mean, you just pick up on these people right away. You can just tell, like, they got this look in their eye. They're just a little off. She sounds just a little off. And in in all seriousness, it sounds to me like she is bipolar to a certain extent. Like she's very intelligent. She, she put herself through medical school. You know, she's, she's had several failed relationships and, you know, there's, there's reports of abuse and, you know, physically and psychologically things like that. But then there's, it's almost like two completely opposite sides to her. That that's my initial assessment anyways. Yeah. And then there's some other things that I don't think I put in here that um, were a little bit interesting. And one of those was, I'm pretty sure it was confirmed that she had, so she had three, three kids and she was using them as a way to get scholarship money, but she wasn't taking care of them. And like the, the families or the fathers themselves were taking care of the kids. And she was using their, basically their existence as a way to get herself into medical school and get grants or scholarships and continue on. Meanwhile, she's not even really taking care of her kids. She doesn't really care about them that much. Yeah, she just, she seems schizophrenic or bipolar or both. Um, she just seems like she's got a lot going on. Like she, like you said, she's pretty book smart. If you can put yourself through medical school and achieve the ability to practice medicine, you have to be intelligent on some level. And then, you know, but she just has like no social skills or, you know, takes things in a way that, you know, most people wouldn't, you know, if you break off a relationship with somebody pretty early on, it's like, okay, sure, whatever. I mean, it's early. Now, it's not like, you know, you've been with somebody for three years and, 
it's like, you know, a few weeks and you're like, eh, we're just not working out. And she just loses her mind. You know, (laughs) it's just, she's nuts. Yeah. It takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah. (laughs) Dressing up in the black dress and bouquet of roses, all that stuff. Sounds like a twisted movie plot, but she like took it to the next level for sure. Yeah. And that's something that's really interesting and sticks out to me. It's almost like she wants to be, she wants to die in a way that was like memorable you know and like leave an impression like sending the message or whatever like she's very poetic in the way that she's trying to do these things and Romeo and Juliet is like something that she would be drawn to or you know like that the tragedy of that story and how it lived on like that just sounds like something that'd be right up her alley yeah she almost wanted to glamorize her death to the fullest possible extent yeah I'll I'll fully back you on the batshit crazy (laughs) <laughs> we got cornhole stamp of approval That's here right. <laughs> so we're going to jump forward to the events as they unfolded following andrew bagby's murder on november 12 2001 turner left her residence in council bluffs and moved to st john's where she lived with her eldest son meanwhile the pennsylvania state police and royal newfoundland constelberry rnc for short intelligence unit conducted surveillance on turner December 2nd, police retrieved printouts from an ultrasound taken from her trash that police had seized. On December 12th, she was arrested and extradition proceedings began. The judge in her case, Gail Welsh, believed Turner was not a threat to society and allowed her to post $75,000 in Canadian dollars bail. Other conditions of her bail were that she would visit the RNC on a weekly basis, promise not to flee, forfeit her passports, and not contact Bagby's family. Turner was able to post bail with the help of former co-worker Dr. John Doucette. Yeah, so Turner, she she posts bail after murder. So first of all, she flees. She leaves the she leaves the United States and heads to Canada. And it's just uh, you know, like <laughs> the the judge in this case, like the fact that she gets out on bail just completely blows my mind. Um I think we'll talk about it again a little bit here coming up, but I mean she murdered somebody and fled a country, and then they let her out. What is going on? What the hell? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like, how can you even think that that makes sense in any any regard? It, it makes no sense. Well, if you look at the justice system, though, you're innocent until proven guilty. So I'm sure at this point in time, she's accused of murder. I don't know that they had, she had sat on, well, she obviously hadn't sat on trial yet, right? She's just, at this point, she's just detained. So she flees, goes to Canada, you know, $75,000 for a suspected murderer. That's the crazy part to me. <laughs> even this is even 2001. I, I think that some of the most heinous crimes you hear, you, especially with, you know, crime of passion, murdering your, the person you're in a relationship with, you know, all those details aside, I've never heard of a $75,000 bail in a suspect, a suspected murder case. No, not at all. And it just, to me, like you just look at her actions, right? She's accused of murdering her former lover. She uh, flees a country, you know, and then comes to your country and you let her out. (laughs) Like to me, just look at her actions there. That just says a lot to me. And, you know, it's, it's more than, you know, I know that they're innocent to proven guilty, but you know, sometimes you have to protect the public by taking the accused and holding them, you know, it's just a matter of the way that things worked out. So I personally couldn't imagine being a judge and looking at this and going, man, there's a crime of passion that probably happened. She was there. We have 
a lot of information pointing to her being there, and then she flees right away to come back here. There's a lot of things going on that tell me that she's more than likely involved in this. I probably shouldn't let her out. It's just walk yourself through those steps logically, you know? Just clearly you have to be... And my thing here is too, like, when you let somebody out like this, it's one thing if the case is something that goes like, hey, there was a a murder that happened, but we think it was done in self-defense. Okay, so maybe it was self-defense. We'll find out during trial. Okay, so this person may or may not have killed somebody, but it was likely, right now at least, suspected that it was done in self-defense. Okay, I can kind of see letting the person who murdered somebody out. In this case, you think that they murdered somebody because they were so passionately involved with them that when the relationship went south, that they went and murdered somebody. So clearly they're mentally unstable. You don't just murder people who break up with you. If people murdered people who broke up with them, we would have nobody left. So you have to be a little bit nuts. So I would not want this person walking around in society until they're proven innocent through the court of law. Right. I completely agree. And don't forget, she had another doctor friend that bailed her out. What does that speak to him? He had to know some of the events that unfolded that put her where she was at that point in time. So... Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that guy ends up like getting in trouble later on. I don't know if we talk about it here, but um, I think he gets accused of something. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure like he ends up getting like something to do with his his practice. Um, you know, he ends up getting charged with something and having to pay a penalty, I believe. Um, yeah, I don't have it in front of me, so uh, I guess we'll just move on from that. Do you have anything else you wanted to add to that? No, I mean it's. I'm going to back you up on everything you said. It's just there was no logical thought in the process of should we grant her bail and should we let her go because she quote unquote is a threat to society at that point, which I I don't, I don't know how you can surmise that when you look at all the facts that are in front of you. Yeah, I don't either. Um, We'll move on here and let's talk about the, the custody battle that's starts to formulate between um, Andrew's parents, uh, Kate and David Bagby, and Shirley Turner. So we'll just recap a little bit here. You have Shirley Turner accused of murdering Andrew Bagby. She is now free on bail, and it's found out that she is pregnant with a child assumed to be that of Andrew's. And once um, Turner gives birth to Zachary, they do a paternity test to determine that it is really Andrew's baby, and it is. Um, Zachary Turner was born on July 18th, 2002. Initially, Turner refused to allow uh, Andrew's parents, David and Kathleen Bagby, to see him. She feared that they would try to kidnap Zachary. And this became quite the unusual situation as Kathleen and David decided they were going to move to Newfoundland to be closer to Zachary and try to get temporary custody of him. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. November 14th, 2002, Shirley was ordered to be placed in jail and the Bagbees were granted custody of Zachary for the duration of her time in prison. Shirley was the only one that actually was was the one who actually signed off on this. Bagby, the Bagbees were ecstatic to have at least temporary custody of Zachary, but they also had to deal with daily calls from Shirley and weekly two-hour drives to the prison to allow her to see him. So as you might imagine, um, in Newfoundland during the winter, 
This could be an arduous task. And in the documentary, Dear Zachary, there's several phone calls recorded between the Bagbys and Turner. And the back and forth is very awkward at times. And just remember, she murdered their son. And they have to be nice to her to play ball to possibly get custody of their grandson. On January 10th, 2003, Shirley was released from jail. The Bagbys had to surrender Zachary to Turner. Again, Judge Gail Welsh allowed Shirley back on the streets. As the story goes, Turner wrote a letter to the judge, who referred her to someone that helped her write her own appeal to be released from jail while she awaited the decision to be extradited to the states. The basis for her release was that, while her offense was a serious one, it was not directed at the public at large. There is no indication of a psychological disorder that would give concern about potential harm to the public while it was violent in nature. The custody battle with Shirley was a constant back and forth with the Bagbys. They were allowed some custody of Zachary, where they had to communicate back and forth with her and coordinate visits. The Bagbys refused to discuss the case with Shirley directly without the involvement of the lawyers, and you hear that in the trailer. She would constantly try to pull them into discussion over the custody battle, as the Bagbys would try to shut that down instantly. The Bagbys fought on with Shirley, with their eyes solely set on the prize, custody of Zachary. The relationship got even more tense as Zachary began to prefer to be with the Bagbys over Turner. It started becoming obvious that Zachary would always go to Kathleen instead of Shirley. There was even um, footage of uh, a birthday party, Zachary's first birthday, where they have Zachary trying to walk, and he starts walking towards Shirley and turns right around and heads back to Kate. And sorry I keep interchanging Kathleen and Kate, um, but that's the same person in this case. So, you know, you'll have Zachary and he's, you can see him. There's several clips that they put in that documentary where you'll see Zachary and he just like goes right back to Kate instead of going to Shirley. Now, I don't know how much of that is, you know, creative liberty on the behalf of the documentarian, but, um, you know, where these things can be very biased, especially this one, because it's Andrew's best friend or one of his best friends made this documentary to basically show Zachary who his father was and all the people that were in his life and, you know, who really cared about him. But then it turned into kind of this pseudo true crime documentary because of the events and the way they end up unfolding as he's recording this. And so it's, you know, it's, it could be very biased. So leave room for that. However, it does appear to be at least somewhat true that Zachary did tend to prefer Kate over Shirley. And what we know at this point in time with her behavior and her, her psychological state with what we know to this point in time in the case, that has to drive her absolutely crazy. That, that is an indication to her that she may be losing a grip on her relationship with her son. And that, that has to set something off with inside of her to just drive her absolutely crazy. Yeah. And I think you, in the, in the film, um, they allude to that quite a bit, if not directly saying so. You get the sense that Shirley starts becoming agitated, that Zachary starts to prefer Kate, and she even says so at some times. You know, he likes you more than me, and, you know, alludes to it quite a bit. Just seems like it feels like it's building to a boiling point. I mean, obviously we know that it does, but like you said, I, I want to go back after we finish covering this case and actually watch the documentary because I, I want to see all of the cues. I mean, we're picking up on them with what we're we're covering here and what we're reading over from, from what we've put together in the narrative, but you, you can, just by reading this and knowing what very little we know about Shirley Turner at this point in time, it is... I can imagine when you actually have video evidence of that and see some of this, you know, home recordings on the documentary or whatever, that it just, 
it just pushes her over the edge. I kind of feel like that that's the direction it's going just by what we're covering right now. Like she's reaching a boiling point. Yeah. And, and it, it does. And the documentary is very well done. I liked it a lot. Um, you know, so I recommend anybody listening, go, go watch it if you haven't already. Um, I mean, this, this whole case is written around that documentary and a lot of the facts that come from it are from the documentary directly. And then some other materials that we research and investigate. But, um, in this case, because the documentary was pretty good and there was a lot to get from it. Um, we use a lot of that material quite heavily and I, I really recommend watching. I thought it was really well done. So, um, you know, I, she, you, you do see this, it starts to kind of boil up and surely gets more and more angry, you know, towards the end of the, of the documentary as, you know, she starts to see that Zachary, you know, starts to prefer the Bagby family over her and that, you know, she's got this impending battle with them in court as well as her murder trial. Like things are just boiling up on her. And, uh, you heard in the trailer, like there's a point in time where she starts talking about how she can't afford, um, diapers and food and the Bagbies are like, you know, Hey, like we'll, we'll, we'll leave it on your doorstep. You're not going to let this kid go hungry. Like he will be fed. We will take care of him. Even if you are the one giving it to him, we will drop this off on your doorstep. And one thing I'd like to point out too, we we've already covered that there's been several claims that she was abusive to the, some of her previous children. I'm not sure what correlation to draw here. Why she's so attached to Zachary, so to speak. Is it just because he's the reason that she was originally bonded out and got out of jail? You know, she has, she knows she has to go back, but why, why that such close attachment? I mean, it, it almost sounds like some, the way that it was described with some of her older children that she just didn't really care about them. She used them as a pawn to get through school, to, you know, to get that assistance, to finish her studies. And, you know, there's, it sounds like there was, you know, several times where she it was reported that she was abusing those children at some at some level. You know, I don't understand why she's drawn so close to Zach at this point. Yeah, I I would say that um, just based on what I know from my research was, it sounds like she didn't really care for kids all that much because she was just a bit crazy in the head, and she. I don't think I I don't think she had the capacity to really love and nurture somebody. She needed someone to love and nurture her and she couldn't do it back to like a child. She wasn't like getting that stimulation that she needed. And so she, at least in her younger days, she just decided like let the let the father and their father's family raise raise these kids. And you know, it's probably a good thing based on what we find out about her. But you know, it's strange in a way because usually a mother bonds with their children, you know, more than anybody else does you know, just the nature of it. It's a much more intimate process for the, for the mother. And so it is a little strange and she is definitely crazy, but I think the bonding of Zachary in this case is more of using him again as a pawn to try to leverage the situation in her favor, to try to manipulate things so that people feel sorry for her, that she has this baby. I mean, she's accused of murder. Like, let's not forget that. She's accused of cold-blooded murder, shooting Andrew Bagby in a parking lot five times, you know, and he's laying there in a pool of his own blood on the ground, and then she flees the country and goes to Canada to go hide, you know, and then she has this kid, and, you know, things start to really get crazy, and I think she just, like, is trying to really, like, just leverage this boy and and just use him as a pawn to make people feel sorry for her and to 
be able to try to escape prison time. I mean, you know, she still hadn't gone to trial yet at this point. And so, you know, you want to, I mean, I'm just imagining that that's what's in her mind is just trying to just use this kid as leverage. That's all I can come up with. I, I, I got the feeling from reading about her that she probably didn't really care about this kid that much, but she had to pretend to. And like you said, bond to him because he's like her meal ticket to try and stay free. To me, that's the only thing that that seems feasible at this point because we've already established several things. A, she's batshit crazy. B, you know, we know almost without a doubt that she killed Andrew Babby at this point in time with where we're at discussing it, right? And three, yeah, she's just using the kids to to try to protect herself. At this point, it's just to try to protect herself. And it, it's inevitable that she's going back to jail. So I think she's trying to just basically cause as much chaos for Andrew's parents as she possibly can because she knows that ultimately they're going to end up being his caretaker, whether she likes it or yeah, not. I think, I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. So let's move on and discuss um, the events as they unfold uh, following the contentious battle over the custody of Zachary. On July 4th, 2003, Turner met a man in a bar in St. John's. They began dating and had intimate relations on at least two occasions. The new man learned about Shirley Turner and her current legal situation, and she was still yet to go to trial for the murder of Andrew Bagby. He decided it was best to end the relationship. Turner, not surprisingly, blew up his phone with over 200 phone calls over the next month. The man phoned the RNC three times to tell them about her harassment, but failed to identify himself and did not file a criminal complaint. This would have put Turner back in jail, as it was against the terms of her bail. On August 18, 2003, Turner purchased 30 tablets of Ativan from a local pharmacy. She then drove with Zachary to nearby Conception Bay South, where her former boyfriend lived. There, Turner parked her car near his house and left photographs of herself and Zachary as well as a used tampon on the front seat. After spiking Zachary's baby formula with Ativan and ingesting it herself, Turner strapped the infant to her chest and jumped off of a fishing wharf into the Atlantic Ocean. Both drowned. It was deemed that Zachary Turner was rendered unconscious by the Ativan and did not suffer. The tampon and photographs left at the ex-boyfriend's house were believed to have been planted by Turner to frame the ex-boyfriend for murder. So here's the sad part, right? And you look at the events as they've unfolded. The the judge lets this lunatic murderer out and says she's not a threat to society. And in the documentary, you hear Kate say the judge was fawning over her, as she put it, saying, oh, Dr. Turner, you know, Dr. Turner this, Dr. Turner that. You know, basically because she was a doctor, she seemed to have uh, hold Shirley in high regard, the judge that is. And again, this is coming from a very biased source as far as, you know, Kate Bagby, because, you know, she obviously hates Shirley Turner for many reasons, and rightly so. This poor baby, just this, I mean, and and the Bagby family, like, let's talk about that for a minute. The Bagby family lost their son to this woman, and then her grandson, you know, their grandson, right after this, you know, within a little over a year, they lose these two. It's just absolutely disgusting when you break it down and start you know looking at it for the events that happen like this woman goes completely nuts murders their son flees the country gets released has his baby and then murders the baby and herself i mean the only good thing that happened here is that she killed herself no i completely agree there are so many loopholes in the in this whole story i just don't 
I'm, I'm having a hard time putting it all together. You're, we didn't explicitly call it out until just now that the judge was fawning over her. Yeah, it could have been a biased source. But then we get to this August 18th date where she tries to frame this ex-boyfriend on the murder, you know, planning pictures, the bloody tampon, which I have no idea what significance that is really, other than she's a, <laughs> just a crazy bitch. But then she goes and purchases 30 tablets of Ativan. Now, I know for a fact, and maybe things were different 15 years ago, you just don't go to the pharmacy and buy Ativan. What, did she write herself a prescription since she's an MD to pick it up and buy it? It's just, there's so, so much crazy shit. And like you said, the only good thing that came out of this was she killed herself. Unfortunately, you know, we know she took Zachary with her. It, but And it, it, as heinous yeah, as it yeah. sounds, at least she gave him something to make him unconscious before she drowned him. It's there's nothing good about that whatsoever, but at least he didn't suffer. Yeah. At least to what we know, right? Right. Yeah. They say he didn't. They the the investigators don't believe that Zachary suffered. That they believe he was unconscious when it happened. I I mean I don't know if she wrote herself a prescription or not. I mean this is Canada, so she's up in St. John's, I believe, and so I don't know. And especially, I mean, this is you know. 15 years ago. So I'm not sure if she wrote her own prescription or not. She, I mean, the judges in this case, I think specifically Gail Welsh, you know, they ignore so many warning signs and we, and we pointed them out to you, you know, she was harassing basically every boyfriend she had from the nineties all the way up until 2003 when she murders, uh, Zachary and kills herself. So, I mean, to not look back and just see that this woman is somewhat psychotic and you talk to her doctor, like the her coworkers, like her supervising physician, and he's like, yeah, basically, she's freaking nuts, dude. Like, she's nuts. We, didn't, we wouldn't even criticize her without a group of people being present. Those type of people don't, I mean, I just don't, I don't get it. Like, how much research did they do on her before they just let her out? I mean, she murdered. She accused of murder for crying out loud, and you let her run loose. Like, it just this just, like, boggles my mind, the fact that you're willing to let this woman walk, and then she goes and does this stuff. It's just absolutely insane. And and the fact that, I mean, there's so many things that could have happened, and, and the, the, the ex-boyfriend right before the murder happens here of, of Zachary he reports this but doesn't report it enough like he doesn't give enough detail and if he reports it properly there's a month gap between this that he could have easily had her put back in jail and none of and zachary's still alive like the guilt that that guy might have like think about that because he's reporting it but he's not doing it thoroughly enough and does he know that he's not doing it thoroughly enough i don't know that that's documented anywhere and i didn't go look it up um but I'd be curious to know if he like how he feels about this. Like if he feels any level of responsibility for the fact that, I mean, obviously he's not responsible and I want to make that abundantly clear. He's not responsible for this because this woman is just nuts and breaking up with somebody is not against the law. And it's not something that you should have to worry about to this level. Um, you know, he was just entangled in like just the wrong thing. I mean, he found out she was a lunatic and was like, nah, dude, I'm, I'm out. And she, is a lunatic and she went completely nuts. I think this just puts a little bit of credibility in what we said about the possibility that she's bipolar though. I think that this woman is, is honestly the master manipulator. She paints a picture of 
being high and mighty to the judge, and if if he the judge was fawning over her and saying, thinking, oh, how great she was. She played the part perfectly because she kept getting released and they kept giving her passes. And then on the flip side, you know, we, we know the end result now of what she did and how far this went. Yeah. She was just normal enough to know how to manipulate. Yep. She wasn't completely off her rocker. She still had the wherewithal to, to know I need to say these things and do these things to try to stay off of the judge's radar. But you know, she should have wrote her prescription. She should have wrote herself a prescription for something for the bipolar disorder. And I'm not knocking anybody that has that disorder. That disorder is very serious. But that that is just my observation of this. She has, to me, she has two sides, and that's pretty apparent. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, I did want to provide some real time follow up. Earlier, we were discussing uh, Doctor John Doucette, who helped post bail for Shirley. And he was found guilty of professional misconduct on May 3rd, 2006 for his involvement in helping Turner post her $75,000 Canadian dollars bail. And he was ordered to pay a fine of $10,000, covering one-third of the $30,000 incurred by the college for the inquiry. And he was ordered to undergo psychiatric counseling. He said that he was disappointed by the verdict, while David Bagby stated that he was happy with the precedent that this case would be setting. So, there you have it. He got in a little bit of trouble for helping her post that bail, and um, it's kind of strange to me. <laughs> it was an ethical. It was an ethical decision at that point to to find him and you know question his credibility as a doctor. Yeah, that's an interesting line to draw. I don't know a whole lot about that part of the system, to be honest with you, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Just reading that and not knowing a lot of the facts of like why they came to that conclusion. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to follow up with that because I know we mentioned it a little bit earlier and I happened to come across it here in my notes. So yeah, I, I definitely, um, Shirley Turner was a completely evil and psychotic person and she had some serious mental disorders and she did not have the proper treatment or help that she required to cope with those things. And that's what happens in some of these situations is these mental disorders can really get to people and it, and it can cause a lot of damage. And, um, you know, the one thing that did come out of this was the, the Bagby family, um, worked very hard to lobby for a bill to be passed called Zachary's bill. And what it did was it would change the criminal code of Canada and allow courts to justify their refusing bail to those accused of serious crimes in the name of protecting their children. And it received unanimous bipartisan support in the Canadian House of Commons, and it received support from the Liberal Senate Senator Tommy Banks. It was signed into law by Governor General David Johnston on December 16, 2010, and Andrews later said that the law gives the Bagbys some sense that someone has heard their cries and it will not happen again. And to change the law to make sure something tragic like this will never happen again. I quoted Andrews there. Andrews is um, Scott Andrews. He was a liberal MP from Newfoundland. So I didn't mention that earlier, just in case you wondered the random Andrews thrown in there. Yeah, I thought I thought it was uh, it's just this ca- this case is so sad. And, you know, I read a lot of comments on the, on the video, um, on the internet and, you know, a lot of people, they couldn't stand watching this documentary. It made them so sad. They, you know, couldn't get through it without tearing up and crying their way through it. 
and it is it was a rough one um not gonna lie i have a a small child and i couldn't imagine any of this stuff going on it's it's disgusting it it takes disgusting to a whole new level in my opinion it it, it wasn't enough for her to decide to end her own life and i i think that that was her ultimate f you to uh, Bagby's parents at that point she's like if I'm not going to live to see tomorrow neither is Zachary and I, I just it, it makes me sick as well yeah it's very sad knowing that there was a family waiting to hold Zachary love Zachary raise him right and she took that away from them because she was just selfish and psychotic and mentally unstable and again there's a lot of people who deal with mental disorders and issues, depression, um, you know, they're schizophrenic or whatever. And I, I sympathize with those people. You know, I couldn't imagine having to try to live with myself. Like, do you just think of like the minor mental games that your mind will play on you just as a normal functioning adult with normal problems in life? And sometimes you're, you just like get in your own head and, you know, but just imagine like that's your, your state amped up a million and you know constantly attacking you you know it's like you're fighting a battle with yourself and i don't know how that feels personally but i can at least empathize with those people and understand that it's got to be tough just even thinking like in terms of some of the minor things that you deal with in your day-to-day life where you know you just start doubting yourself or you feel like you can't do it and you know in your mind is just telling you one thing and you're thinking another thing and you know it happens to just normal everyday people but you know, the folks who suffer from this on like as a regular occurrence, that can be super tough. I mean, I, I just couldn't imagine dealing with that on a regular basis. And, and I'm sure Shirley dealt with a lot of that. And I feel bad that she did. But at the same time, like, I mean, she was smart enough to go to become a doctor, not smart enough to help treat herself. No, I totally agree. And I sympathize with those people as well. I sympathize with those people to the to the extent of, you know, I've had family members that have dealt with some of these issues. So there's that personal aspect for from my side so it's something that can be dealt with and managed it's it definitely makes everyday life very difficult but yeah unfortunately and and with this story and with this case that that wasn't what happened so no it it wasn't at all all right that'll do it this week for our eighth case case number eight on Zachary Turner. And if you enjoyed our show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a few ratings finally. Thank you to those of you who went out and rated us. Thanks for listening to us. Thanks for spreading the word. Thank you so much for interacting with us on social media. I love getting messages from you guys on Instagram. Um, I know uh, Craig tends to field the Twitter account more than I do. I tend to field the Instagram account more than he does. However, we do both overlap at times, so on occasion you will hear from us, especially to uh, our good friend Lou, who hits us up and didn't believe us about the obscene amount of ass cracks that you can find in a Walmart in the United States. She is an international listener. I sent her photographic evidence of such ass crackery at Walmart, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Those are the kind of fun things you get from us when you talk to us on social media. Uh, Sometimes you have to break up the... um, sad nature of some of these sadistic and twisted people in cases that you research with uh with some butt cracks so anyway thank you guys so much again we really appreciate it we had a great week we're really enjoying doing the show we hope you really appreciate the show um you know and you know please 
hit us up, follow us, rate us, spread the word. We really appreciate it. We love it. If you want to check out our website, you can head out to www.killerpod.net. And there you can support the show uh, financially if you'd like to. You can listen to episodes out there. Uh, I do occasionally try to update the blog. I'm pretty bad about it. Lately, uh, Craig and I, we do have full-time real jobs that are probably taking closer to 60 hours a week than 40 and then this is like another full-time job just trying to put the show together so some of those things are not coming together as much as i would like but you know we do the entire show ourselves we we write it we research it we record it we edit it we write the music um you know so there's so much that goes into the show and it's just it's a lot of work so we do it we do love doing it for you guys but if you'd like to you know head out there and support us craig i'll kick it over to you yeah, like David said, we really appreciate all the response we have on social media. So if you want to go out there and reach us, be sure to check us out on Twitter at killer underscore podcast on Instagram at killer podcast, our Facebook page, which I don't believe I've ever signed on to, but it is out there is <laughs> facebook.com uh, forward slash killer podcast. And you can reach us by email at killer podcast at gmail.com. And, um, just one more to add here. We did recently set up a Patreon page. If you want to show some more support for the show, like David said, we would super appreciate it. Um, you can reach that site at uh, www.patreon.com forward slash killer podcast. Yes. And that is new for us. We set up a couple of levels out there. Um, we would really appreciate any support that you can provide us. It'll help us get things uh more in line for the show and we really appreciate you listening and understand if you can't uh, help us out that way we just we honestly really do just enjoy making the show for you guys but it does help and it goes a long way in making a better product for everybody so that being said um we're going to sign off for this week but to be the man you gotta beat the man and i'm saying woo right here i'm the man you're gonna be mine Woo! Stay safe. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.